Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. This is Dr. Kira Lovell here with another episode of U.S. History. Let's dive in. Today, we're looking at the other flip side of the era, of the Progressive Era, called the Gilded Age. Um, I'm going to remind you of the context for the early 20th century. We have the end of the Civil War, and the Civil War is not not just this battle over slavery, but I want you to think about it as this suffering and battling. Like it is this major divisive national um, issue like that for years. Imagine brothers fighting against brothers, families fighting against families, um, siblings fighting against siblings. Um, and so it's a moment, the end of the Civil War is a moment for national unification, okay? But it's not peaceful and it's not cohesive and it's definitely not easy. So the post-Civil War um, era, as soon as the Civil War ends, what we do is we have a period of recession because there's such devastation from the war, like just complete and utter devastation. Um, there's also a period of high unemployment. And this is in part because A, a lot of people have died um, and B, there are 4 million freed African-Americans that are now on the labor market, that are now no longer considered slaves, they're considered workers. Um, and so how do we treat them as humans? Um, so in this period, this is the context for the early 20th century, because today we're going to talk a lot about class. Uh, but to begin with, what I want to do is give two different visual perspectives on Manifest Destiny. The first that we have is a famous painting by John Gast called American Progress. It's from 1872. And normally what I do is in class, I ask you to just tell me what you see, give you a few minutes and look at it. Um, but what I want you to, what I want to do is go ahead and give you some details. And then in the quiz portion for this lecture, you're going to give me the so what, like analyze it. So if I point out the details you have, you can give me the answer. So let me point out some things for you real quick in case you didn't notice. First, the center of the picture is Columbia. If you don't know Columbia, she is um, a figure, a female figure that's a representative of America. She starts out in the Revolutionary War era um, in which she's named for Columbus. So she's like the female, virginal, young, pure, blonde, beautiful virgin of America. Um, what's important is that she is seen as innocent. It, through this depiction, America is seen as innocent. Um, she's got a star on her head, she's floating, she's angelic. In her hand, if you didn't notice what she has in her hand, she has telephone wires, wraps of them, and she's. you can see that she's has them connected to telephone poles. She also has a school book. I believe it's a school book. Yeah, it literally says school book in her hands. Okay, so that's the center of the picture, is young, white, virginal womanhood um, in an angelic form. So the rest of that, what we see in the background is a map of the United States. Um, on the far right side, what we can see is New York. That's what that's supposed to be, is um, the Hudson Bay. Um, we have the Brooklyn Bridge. We have um, boats signifying international um, commerce. We also have in the middle, we have two railroads um, signifying transcontinental commerce and transportation, but also commerce. 
Um, you also have personal modes of transportation because you have wagons. If you remember from the Oregon Trail, that is the type of, of transportation that an individual family might have had crossing the West. Um, you have another type of wagon. You also have to bring sort of a lot of these characteristics that we've been talking about together is in the bottom, we have a depiction of a yeoman farmer young farmer uh, family and essentially sort of in this image they have cleared the way along this riverbed uh, making a fam a, a farm for themselves and their families but again it's what you remember if you can connect that with the image that you saw before is it's shovels it's not big machines let me we see a lot of big machines in this image we have boats trains, even wagons is a big machine. Here on Yeoman Farmer, they're always characterized as like small shovels, um, a, a mule, like literally your own manpower. So we have that. Other things that you might notice are far to the left side, we can see Native Americans. And what you'll notice is that they're the darker portion of the image rather than the lighter portion, which is considered like on the right side of technology, um, industrialism, um, transportation, those are all on the light side, enlightenment. On the left side of the dark side, we have Native Americans um, with their buffalo that are fleeing. What you'll see is they're fleeing into the darkness away from this onslaught, this um, migration of Westerners towards that side. Um, I think what's also interesting is that even though Columbia is very, what we would call scantily clad, she's um, in a sexualized dress, half nude, but we wouldn't say that she is sexual. We would say she's virginal, she's innocent, she's very Roman. Um, and that is the whole point is that she was intended to be um, a, a classical Roman figure of, of purity. What's interesting is I say that because when you see the Native Americans in this image that are darkly lit, um, there are women that are also scantily clad. However, those are not represented in a classical Roman way. They're meant to convey that they are um, uncivilized um, and that they are not fully, in, in especially in, in terms of how large they are with the Western men that are on the yeoman farm. Um, it's meant to sort of um, compare and contrast them as one is similar and one is, I mean, one is civilized and one is not. So those are some details that I want to point out with you. Uh, what you're going to do is I'm going to unpack the next image and then you're going to go to the quiz. Um, and that is the first question that's on the quiz, if I'm not saying it's the first, in which you are going to answer the question in the quiz question using specific details from these images. So let's look at the next image. The next is not a painting, it's a political cartoon. And again, political cartoons are very, 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 very important in this time period. Um, and what you see here is a classroom. Now, political cartoons, in case you're not familiar, is a way in which you draw a cartoon, but it's satirical, sarcastic. What it's meant is that it's total metaphor. Uh, political cartoons are meant as metaphors to represent larger issues and discussions and culture at the time period. Um, and so in this characteristic, while we've had before, we had an image of America as Columbia, the young female virginal character of Columbia, of America. Here we have um, Uncle Sam. 
And he is, again, going back to the concept of paternalism, of the father figure. He is the classical representative of a father figure in American culture. So I'm going to unpack some elements of this image. Uh, again, it's a classroom, and Uncle Sam is the teacher, meaning that he's the authority figure. He is in control. Um, some other things that you're going to see here are we have our students. Um, in the back rows, what you'll see is we have some states like New Mexico, Nebraska, um, California. What's intended by those pupils in the back with their, with their books up is that those are states. Those are all states in the West. And so what's meant to convey there is that because the West is new to America in this time period, like really new, like California is freaking new. And so, but what, what you'll see there is that they are nicely combed, well-dressed, they are uh, subordinate. And so the artist is conveying that those states have been um, following the orders of America. In contrast, you'll see in the front row, um, a group of new uh, students, new players in this field. Um, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, and the Philippines. And there's a very different uh, contrast that we see between them and the others. So while most of the others in the back, except for Alaska, are lighter skinned, these pupils in the front are darker skinned. Um, they follow a lot of the racist stereotypical treatments that you'll see in political cartoons, cartoons at the time of ape-like figures, roundish faces, um, larger, thicker lips, um, why, um, uh, frizzier hair, larger, frizzier hair. Um, we have no shoes uh, on them. We have socks or we have no socks at all. Um, and what's interesting is that they're all frowning. So I think that's important as well, that they're not happy with the situation. Okay. Uh, in the back, what you'll see on the back wall, that black painting or that black uh, board. Um, essentially what you have there is a phrase and you can, you can look at it more. Um, but, uh, essentially what it's saying on that wall is that, uh, um, actually, let me just read it. I'll just read it to you. The consent of the governed is a good thing in, but very, but very rare. In fact, England was govern, has governed her colonies whether they consented or not. By not waiting for their consent, she has greatly advanced the world civilization. By not waiting for their consent. The U.S. must govern its new territories with or without their consent until they can govern themselves. So again... Clearly what's indicated is that the U.S. has new territories and they're focusing on whether or not those people consent to be governed, whether or not that's even a relevant issue. Do we even care if they consent to be governed? Um, and what does that look like? What does, according to this political cartoon, this political cartoon is representing what America thinks about its new territories and how America would like to be perceived in this world. So you should give me some insight into that. Uh, on the back wall, let me show you some pay attention to things on the back wall. What we can see is the stereotypical Chinese citizen that's not even in the school, so not even allowed to be in the classroom, is this Chinese uh, student in the doorway. 
To the left of the Chinese student is a Native American who is portrayed as um, not smart, not intellectually uh, achieved because it's reading the book upside down. That's how you can tell that, what that stereotype is. Um, finally, we have in the far back left, we can see African-Americans. That's not even a student at all, but is actually characterized as a worker, as a cleaner in this room. So that being said, what I want you to do is the first uh, step in the quiz, which you can do later, you can return to this clip. I would actually suggest doing it later, um, is you're going to go and you're going to compare and contrast a manifest destiny um, in these two images. And why I say doing it later is really helpful is because I'm about to talk about manifest destiny. And so it might make a little more sense as to manifest destiny is this uh, concept in which America is thinking about itself and its place in the world. And these two images, very different images, a painting and a political cartoon, give us some insight into that. So let's talk a little bit more about this. Okay, my good people, manifest destiny. What do we got? So Manifest Destiny, if you haven't heard of that phrase, I recommend Googling it and finding the Wikipedia page on it. It's a, it's one of those important terms like when I say in these lectures, like you should look that up. It's a really important term in US history um, and especially in this time period. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about it, but you should look it up. So Manifest Destiny is a widely held, held belief in the United States, in this time period especially, that its settlers were destined to expand across North America and beyond. Hopefully you've gotten some hint of this, indication of this in uh, James Lowen, um, Lies My Teacher Told Me, um, because we can see this as a sentiment that's like in this time period, absolutely they believed in and advocated in, and you would have found it in newspapers at the time, but also that that sentiment has impacted how we tell American history since then, which is important. So manifest destiny is literally like it's your destiny, meaning like God given pathway that you're manifesting that you're bringing to the surface manifest means like to make it happen. It's an irresistible destiny to accomplish an essential duty. And the, that essential duty is expanding across North America and beyond. Uh, this is embedded in the concept of paternalism, which hopefully I've hammered home with you as far as we can see that paternalism in the first factories with the Lowell Mill Girls. We can see that paternalism in terms of enslavement. And also once slavery is over, what do we do with African-Americans? Uh, it's important in this concept because as we're expanding America, we don't expand in a vacuum. We expand where people are already occupying. And so we take that same concept of father knows best um, and we can do what's best for you and we can civilize you and we apply it to those places uh, through the West, but also Cuba, Puerto Rico, Philippines, whatnot. Expansionism. What's important about that is that um, how they're seeing American expansion is that it's almost like a gas, that it just, it'll never see any bounds. Um, there's an expansion of American imperialism to Cuba, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, 
um, the Philippines, Alaska, North America, the West, uh, etc. In which it's just naturally filling the space and it's natural, uh, meaning that it's not forced, it's not coerced, um, it's not arbitrary. It is almost like an air, like it's just naturally sort of filling the space. And that's how Americans wanted to view themselves and their expansion as God-given, as natural, as its, its destiny. Um, it's the only logical um, thing that would happen in this situation. Okay, now, same time period, because um, this is the Gilded Age quiz, uh, is, so the same word that we use for the progressive era is the Gilded Age, and gilded means to coat with gold, gold leaf, or gold-colored substance. Um, this is not, as far as I know, it's not gold leaf, but imagine if this, oh, ooh, perfect, oh, that's a great example. This is gilded, meaning this is totally a piece of crap. Feels like a totally cheap uh, earring. In fact, you can already see it like scratching, but this is just like a gold leaf. So it's shiny, it makes it seem like it's fancier than an R, but if you scratch this, there's nothing underneath. This is gilded, and that is the phrase that they're using to describe this age, meaning that while it may seem on the outside like it's really beautiful, that um, it's full of rich people, it's full of wealth, it's full of progress. If you scratch the surface, if you look a little bit closer, it's actually quite problematic. Um, and we're going to talk about some of those issues. Um, also, this era, when we talk about the Gilded Age, so progressive era means, um, and we're going to talk about that a little bit, progressive era is about, um, honestly, like social uh, progress, uh, legislative progress, things like that. Gilded Age oftentimes is focusing just on economics uh, because this is a time period in which we have the expansion of market capitalism. Um, we have commerce, we have industrialization, our factories, the first factories that we had in 1840s are now just exponentially expanding. Um, and what's interesting about it is that what's important and when we use the term Gilded Age, what we're doing is we're focusing on how this expansion of market capitalism is at the expense of marginalized people, at the expense of poor people, people of color, immigrants, women, children, um, how those are, when we're expanding capitalism, we're not thinking about them, we're using them um, to make the rich richer. Uh, and this is just an example of that. Um, so this is, you'll see again, a lot of political cartoons in this era because it's kind of like a popular form of art, kind of like a meme nowadays it, or a GIF, a GIF, GIF, I say GIF. That's the correct way and I don't care how you say it. Uh, but a meme nowadays, you look at a political cartoon in this time period. So this one, for example, is the condition of the laboring man at Pullman. Pullman is a company that makes railroad cars. Um, and what's important is that in this time period, monopoly, monopolies are happening in which if you own one thing, you want to own all components of that thing. So that way you can control the market. So Pullman, um, own a, he's a company producing railroad cars. What do you want to do? You want to own the railroads. You want to own um, the, the place where you sell the goods at from the railroad cards. You want to own all the components of it because then you can monopolize that market. You can control it and you can make a profit off of it. The whole point of, as well of Pullman is that cause Pullman is based in Chicago at this time period. I've actually been to, um, uh, that neighborhood cause it's still around, although no one's really living in it. Uh, 
what's interesting is that Pullman, like, think of Lowell Millen, which is a factory town. Those factory towns still exist, and Pullman creates this factory town outside of Chicago um, in which they recruit people to work for them. The same way as Lowell Mill happens, the same thing at Pullman, even though it's like 60 years later, um, in which they recruit workers there, then they start charging them high rent and low wages for the work, despite the fact that they're in the middle of nowhere and can't really offer like, there's no competitive work that they can pursue. And so um, even when workers are striking, um, what they do is that they bring in troops or they bring in guns or bring in strike breakers um, to force either to force them out um, or to hurt them so that they won't strike anymore. They call this wage slavery, the idea that um, many working class people were slaves to their wages, like they were slaves to the hourly wage, the daily wage. Um, and slavery, what I think is interesting is that you'll, you, you can see this in a couple of places in this time period, many places in this time period, in which largely whites are internalizing that concept of the slave owner, the slave, and applying it to the context of um, capitalism, about how we don't like the way workers are treated in this time period. Okay, so what's important is that in this time period, just like we have progressive era and golden age, we also have two terms to describe the same thing. We have captain of industry and we have robber baron. So these are opposing viewpoints. Captain of industry is the word that we use when we want to describe a, a positive viewpoint of a really rich entrepreneur. Um, a really rich entrepreneur, for example, in this time period, um, again, it's two words to describe the same thing. So a captain of industry might be Henry Ford if you like him. A robber baron might be Henry Ford if you don't like him. So it really doesn't matter who we're talking about. But let's say captain of industry, if we're talking about Henry Ford, creates jobs, increased production for the nation, provides cheap products to the people, um, gives money back to the community, helps build the nation, okay? Robber baron is a negative viewpoint of a really rich person that owns a corporation. If you are a critic of really rich people that own corporations, these are some of your critiques, that you exploit workers, that you are corrupting the government, that you're greedy, that you're offering bribes for political favors, and you're above the law. And this is honestly this binary between are we for rich corporation owners and against them is really important because also in this time period, we have no legislation protecting workers. Um, we have almost like nil legislation protecting workers. If you die on the job, you die. There's nothing for you and your family. You get hurt on the job. That sucks for you because you'll never have anything um, uh, that will pay for your family. Um, it's kind of up to you that it's your fault if you got into trouble um, and it's your responsibility to um, work as hard as you can, as best as you can, um, for as much money as you can, even if it's poverty wages and you can't organize. Union organizing is seen as a negative thing. So um, what I want you to do is in the quiz, this is another point at which you are going to later on, you're going to go and read the sources. Um, there's in, an, a political cartoon and some quotes. And what I want you to do is again, think about this duality between robber baron and captain of industry. What do those mean in this time period? How can, if you look at the primary sources, those little snippets that I give you, 
what can you see there? How can you interpret as far as what is a robber baron? How do we think about them? And how do we think about caption of industry? All right, so the last few slides I wanna leave you with are the face of the Industrial Revolution. We have a rise in sweatshops and piecework. So sweatshops um, are really small uh, factories, even sometimes in apartment buildings, um, in which the whole point was it's this, it comes from this verb to sweat. And to sweat a worker means that you get the most amount of work out of them for the least amount of pay. Essentially, you're sweating them, like you're turning the heat up on their workload. Piecework is also another thing. So in addition to sweatshops in which we're sweating you to see like how much work we can get out of you in the lowest amount of pay, uh, piecework means that you're gonna do that, uh, you're gonna sweatshop during the day, um, then you're also gonna take some piecework home. So maybe like you are this girl and you work at a factory during the day. Um, you might also take uh, five to 10 garments, depending on how well you can sew, um, of piecework, meaning that you can take 10 shirts home with you and in your own spare time, you're gonna sew those shirts. Tomorrow you're gonna bring them back and you'll get a penny for each one. That's also how they're making pennies on the dollar, even in their free time, what little free time that they have, because there's no laws yet regulating the hours of work, the safety of work and whatnot. Uh, this is also an era of investigative journalism and photography. Uh, so we can see that in many different ways as far as Ida B. Wells is investigating lynching, um, which we talked about in the last lecture um, of violence against African-Americans. We also have Lewis Hines and Jacob Reese that are investigating the working conditions of especially working class immigrants. Um, and so this is uh, photos like these um, would become the face of the Industrial Revolution because Lewis Hines and Jacob Rees, their whole point was trying to how do we have a human face. If we're so focused on making products cheaply and more efficiently, um, we should care about the children, like the literal children that are making these products for our nation. Okay, this is an image in, of, of a sweatshop. Um, and so what you'll find, this is by Jacob Reese, and it's a quick photo that was taken in a sweatshop. It's not like these photos were legal, but the thing is, is that they're very, very common in places like New York City, um, in which they're very, sweatshops are very small and again, stuffed into apartments. And what you'll see here is that it's a, usually a lot of people crammed into a small space. Textiles are very big um, as a sweatshop industry, um, mainly because uh, cotton is uh, on this, the, one of the largest commodities on the global market. So if in the South, even if we're still producing a ton of cotton, the North is turning that cotton from uh, cotton to textiles, um, cloth. They're also producing that into garments. They're selling that back to the South and they're also selling that into Europe. Uh, but I think what's really important here is that in sweatshops, you'll see a variety of different ages and genders. Um, it's important here is because you'll see, you see the teenage girl who has the scissors on her mouth. And so what's important is that photographers like Jacob Reese weren't necessarily always um, focused on showing um, dangerous situations, but they were interested in showing the human side of the human toll toil the human um, experience of the workplace. Okay, and a great example of how we can, people were, were seeing, experiencing, and troubled by the human experience of the workplace, oops, sorry, there we go, 
is the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. It is a huge uh, fire that killed 146 workers, 123 men, 23 men, uh, 123 women, 23 men. Uh, most were recent um, Jewish and Italian immigrants aged 14 to 23 women. Um, the factory owners had locked the doors to the stairwells and exits to prevent breaks and theft. Because again, if I can say anything, it's that we do not have proper labor conditions for our workers. We do not have workers' rights. There's no concept that a worker has any rights. Um, if you think about it today, like as a student, you have some rights. So you have a right to enter a room in which you can exit. Um, you have a right to... Um, if there is a fire that the uh, sprinklers will, co will come down and protect you. Um, you have a, a right so that the furniture that you sit on doesn't harm you. Um, there are a lot of different ways in which like the food you eat doesn't harm you, um, in which that is a guaranteed as your right as a, as a student here that you are uh, prevented um, from these harms. That is not in any way the case in this time period. There's no legislation. It's all on your own. Uh, and so in this case, what happened is that there's a fire that breaks out. And the reason why it breaks out is because in a textile factory, there's all these, if you take your jeans and you rub them, there's these little bits of um, cloth, like of cotton that come out. <clears throat> and what happens is that in a textile factory, these are in the air. So it makes the air literally catch fire. Um, you also have machines running and whirring and whatnot. Um, and I'm not sure if it was a machine catching fire or if it was a cigarette or whatnot, but that's what happens is that the air catches fire, cloth on the, on the ground, that's a lot of pieces of cloth that catch fire. And so it sets the building on fire and there's multiple floors of it. Um, and I can show you that. So what we can see here is like there's the designing room on the 10th floor, the cutting room on the 9th floor, another another cutting room on the 8th floor. Um, and what happens is that there's only a single window leading to a fire escape. Um, and so women are literally, because some are trying to escape out of the fire escape, Some at one point the fire escape gets blocked by fire and so people can't escape through the fire escape building burns down um and so what happens is the this is in the middle of new york city and so you can see teenage girls literally diving to their deaths outside in the middle of new york city diving out of windows some of which are just trying to escape the smoky air some of which are screaming because they just don't want to burn to death um and so the images that you see Actually, I'll, I'll see that in a second. So this is another image of the fire in which how many workers you'd have in a sweatshop like this, like dozens and dozens. Again, there's that's another standard that we have today is how many people are allowed to fit in a room. Um, in this time period, absolutely no regulation on that. But you can actually see in that photograph some semblance of like how crowded, how full of, of um, fabric that can catch on fire was everywhere. On the right, you can see the complete devastation of it. Um, how many machines caught on fire, products caught on fire, and whatnot. So the image that you saw, if you were there, and in the newspapers, was of teenage girls, largely, or young women, that had plummeted to their deaths and were dead on the side of the street. There were so many of them, and so many of them were poor working-class women, uh, and they couldn't identify them, that they put, you can see in the, in the image there, they had... Um, 
They got a warehouse and put all of their caskets just to get people to come by and see if they can identify them because they couldn't identify them. Because again, think back to Lowell Mill, these teenage girls, especially teenage girl immigrants, they're an expendable part of the population that we don't care about. Um, and what's what's important about this moment is that in finally, in this era, in the progressive era, we begin to care. This, this seeing their deaths, seeing how tragic their deaths were, becomes this uh, trigger to ignite, especially middle-class women, into campaigning for workers' rights. Um, another, not just middle-class women campaigning for the rights of working-class women, but also working-class women campaigning for their own rights. So one example is that is that it leads to both top-down and bottom-up organizing. We have legislation to improve factory safety standards and the organization of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, um, which is important because young women are organizing for themselves. They're not waiting on this legislation to be given to them. Um, so this is, again, part of the progressive era. Um, it's a period of widespread social activism and political reform across the United States that span from the 1890s to the 1920s. Uh, one of the parts of the progressive era is the settlement house movement. And again, thinking back to Henry Ford and his efforts to assimilate, assist and assimilate poor uh, immigrants, the settlement house movement was led by women. And the point of it was that imagine going into a neighborhood in which it's mostly single poor women of, of color. And of color in this instance, what we see here on in the map is that if you Google this image, this is actually a map of Chicago, um, the south side of Chicago, and each color represents a, uh, a different income level. Um, and so the poorest you'll see is in the black. And actually that corresponds with the largest amount of African-Americans in those neighborhoods. But I believe the blue is like Russian and Italian. Um, we have the green that's Jewish. Um, I can't actually recall the other um, ethnic stereotypes, but it's highly uh, racially segregated in the in the, um, uh, Chicago, especially because again, it's completely legal to block someone from renting your apartment as long as they don't um, it, it, it for a certain race or income level or whatnot. So the settlement house movement is intended in which middle class women go into these neighborhoods and are trying to help these women, especially women like those that were in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. Um, and how can we not only assist them of like give them a place to stay so that they don't have to become a prostitute, um, give them a place in which they can raise their children, give them a place in which raising their children means getting them an education. Um, and for example, the this map was created by the settlement house called the whole house in Chicago. And it was intent to, if we can draw a map to show how poor people are um, and how diverse this neighborhood is, then we can prove how our um, nonprofit is going to help these people, how they need our help. The thing is, it's just like with Henry Ford and trying to help immigrants in this time period, we are also interested in how do we assimilate immigrants. Um, how do we assimilate poor people? We have the proper way that we can teach them. Um, we can teach them to be better. They need our help. Um, again, it's a very paternalistic, like father knows best characteristic that's put on the individual rather than the system and that the system is problematic rather than just how these people are in a really crappy situation. The last thing I want to um, leave you with, uh, actually there are two slides 
And what the first one is about factory workers. Um, and so when I'm telling you about how there are uh, how what we need in the progressive era are policies to improve labor conditions. That's because in this era we are trying to push labor to the max that it could possibly be pushed to. So we have um, what's interesting is I talked about before from piecework in which like you can do things in your own time. The next thing we have is tailor, excuse me, tailorism. And which is based off a man that literally studied someone uh, on an assembly line and studied their movements, like literally picking up this one thing and moving it to the next, picking up this one thing and moving it to the next. And Taylor studied them. And what he discovered is like, if we can move this three millimeters here and that three millimeters there, what we can do is shave off half a second off their move and therefore we can make one more product by this person a day. And so Taylorism is the part of this efficiency movement in this what's called the new modern era of how do we make things more efficient, uh, faster, stronger and we're going to do that through the assembly line. And what's important is that the assembly line is the human. We don't have massive machines like we do now in which entire machines can run assembly lines. In this time period, we need humans as all parts on the assembly line. However, how we are beginning to see workers in this time period is instead of the yeoman farmer, instead of being self-sufficient in control of your own domain, what you see is the depictions of the alienated worker. And part of the quiz is that you're going to watch this short clip um, from Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, in which it's a comical uh, version of the alienated worker. And so I want you to analyze if we're if this is a primary source clip, what does this tell us about how workers are feeling about their condition? Are they happy? Um, they're having a great time? I don't think so. So you tell me. Finally, what I want to leave you with is that there are progressive era solutions. So even though a lot of these issues in this time period are very problematic, they're interested in, in clear cut solutions. Um, 1984, um, the famous uh, book called The Jungle by Upton Sinclair is published and it's a novel on the meatpacking industry. And what's interesting about it is that it is, it's a, a slightly fictionalized and sensationalized, but it captures how the meatpacking industry, which is huge, like, it's weird to think, but like sausages, meat products, that was big business in that time period, especially in Chicago. And so the jungle was this investigative report as to what life was like in the meatpacking plants. And he wrote about how um, workers were would be like f uh, funneling meat through the sausage machines and their hand would get stuck in there and their whole body would get pulled into it and they'd be making sausage out of humans and no one even care, no one even stopped the machine. Like talk about the alienated worker. So um, this book was so popular that this book led to the first Meat Inspections Act because we literally had no legislation govern uh, with any oversight over what was in our meat. You could put any food product out there and if anyone bought it, it was totally fine. You could put rotten meat out there. You, in fact, that was really common was that you, if meat was out, sold, but no one bought it, it turns brown because it rots. So what you're going to do is you're going to inject pink dye into it 
repackage it up and sell it as new meat, totally legal to do. So the Meat Inspection Inspections Act, um, another one is the 1906 Pure Food and Drugs Act, because again, you could put any medicine out there, you could put medicines out there like cocaine, morphine, um, and say, oh, this makes your stomach feel better, this cures nausea, um, this makes... Um, uh, your lightheadedness go away. Um, how many treatments in this time period for period cramps? Oh my God, Lysol douching. Like literally Clorox bleach was a treatment for women and putting them in their vagina. Horrible, horrible things in this time period. And that's because we don't have legislation up until now to say you can't actively harm people. You can't make a product um, that lies and tries to sell it that way. You can't make a profit off of harming others. This is very important that these are new basic legislations that have impacted our life today. Another one is in 1919, the eight hour workday, uh, because again, we don't have limitations on workers. We can work them as hard as we want, however long we want, every day um, if we want. Um, and then I also include here in 1920 to 33, the prohibition of alcohol. Um, and that was a time in which literally it was illegal to drink alcohol. And it's not until 1933 that we decide, mm, you're right, let's go back. Uh, because this is in an era in which uh, alcohol is seen as something that's bring bought, being brought in by foreigners, like Germans, especially Eastern Europeans, Russians, um, with vodka and beer and all this stuff. And so it's part of the xenophobia wave of we don't want these foreigners bringing in alcohol and, and bringing in um, their domestic violence, um, their working class lifestyles. We want to eliminate this. Turns out we like booze. So some of our efforts that we do in the progressive era are out of things like racism and xenophobia. Some of them are out are interested in protecting workers. Some of them are just like, mm, no, we're going to scrap that and we're definitely going to keep our alcohol. So that being said, what I want to do is leave you with that. Um, head to the quiz. Um, I believe it's 60 minutes that you have on the quiz, but I'm not entirely sure. But either way, it, it corresponds um, with uh, elements in this lecture today, which I hope you enjoyed, and I will see you next week. Bye.